0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. That can be found in the Church Bible on page 848. My name is Tom Bennett, and I serve as an elder here, and also as I'm in the home fellowship group, community group in Chantilly. And just to set the context for this passage, The Sadducees have just come to Jesus to ask him what they believe to be a trick question about the the resurrection. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. To you,
1: God. Well, it is. A great and distinct pleasure for me to introduce to you the Reverend Dr. Paul Jean. Paul has been a friend for at least a decade, not just of mine, but of many of those on our church staff and in our church body. He is a church planner, or has been a church planner under the McLean umbrella, and now is the senior pastor of New City, one of our sister churches. He is a beloved professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary where many of my students have simply said, it doesn't matter what Paul teaches, I will take it. And he is also a husband, the father of three, and we have the joy of having him come to open God's word this morning with us. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much that you have given man after man who can bring your word and open it to us and teach us. Particularly, thank you for Paul and his gift of being with us this morning. We pray that you would give him the words that would open this text to us, that would, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts in a way that would change our lives. Thank you that we get to be taught this morning. Please, may he be the means that you, Holy Spirit, use to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bill. Excuse
2: me. It's a real delight for me to be here with you all. Um, Our church really represents the fruit of your efforts, uh, New City. We recently purchased a building together with Reform Theological Seminary right here in the Tyson's Corner area. Uh, Dr. Scott Redd, who will be coming here in a few weeks, and I, we had this vision. As many of you know, Tyson's Corner, it's a happening area. It's a growing area. And we thought it would be amazing to have a seminary and a church planted right in the heart of Tyson's Corner. Now, it's um, somewhat humorous is whenever I try to describe the location, I'll say it's near the Olive Garden. It's near the Vienna DMV. No one gets it. And then I say it's right next to the Tiffany's. Everyone's like, yes, I know exactly where it is. But um, it's an amazing thing that we were able to get that. And I want you to know this. We as a church are where we are today because of you. Um, This is not something I'm just saying. Um, I always tell our church members that we are really where we are today because MPC poured into us. And and so I want to thank you. And I also want to encourage you that... You may not always see the fruit of your giving, of your time, your money, your heart, but there's much fruit there. And so how wonderful is it that uh, we are able to purchase a building in the Tyson's Corner area and we can do great uh, gospel ministry there. So on behalf of my church, we want to say thank you. This is such a wonderful church. Um, if I was not at my church, I would, I would honestly be here. And so it's, um, and I am here, and who knows, maybe. But um, <clears throat> all right, let's um, Let's get started. So uh, this is the first in this series, and I thought it might be good to reflect first on this series. Asking questions. Asking questions is so important for us, friends. Like, if we don't ask questions about the faith, if we don't struggle, uh, we're not going to grow. Our faith is going to be so weak. And the minute suffering comes, the minute a sophisticated skeptic comes, our faith can fall apart. Uh, Recently, I asked my first two sons, um, I asked them, hey, it was over breakfast, do do you think you two are uh, genuine followers of Jesus? I said, do you think if you die, you'll go to heaven? And my first son said, well, I don't know about that. Uh, He goes to a public school, and this is what he said to me. He said, you know, most of my classmates, they don't believe in Jesus. And so if what the Bible says is true, This means that um, they're going to go to hell. And he said to me, it's very hard for me to believe that a loving, a compassionate God is okay with so many people suffering eternally. And I said, okay. And then I asked my second son, how about you? And you can tell the difference in their personalities. He says, well, Dad... you just can't believe everything you read. (laughs) He said, in one book, I read about a scientist who gets shot by gamma rays and becomes incredibly strong when he gets angry. In another book, I read about a man who raises people from the dead and is raised from the dead. You just can't believe everything. You know, how naive can you be? So he looks at me and he says, I'm not sure where I stand in terms of the faith. And, um, you know, for me as a father, my response was was not like, well, you know, I am a PCA pastor. This is uh, <laughs> this is very troubling. You know, if, if anything, uh, my wife and I were thankful that they're at least wrestling through these questions. And I want to encourage you throughout the summer, uh, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, but as Tim Keller says, he says, but also learn to doubt your doubts. You know, your doubts may not be ultimate. And so, it's a blessing for us to be able to struggle through these questions together. And so let's look at this first question. Uh, our passage <clears throat> provides a natural outline uh, for the message today. So three, um, three points I want to make. The first is this, the validity of the question, the validity of the question that the scribe asked. Number two, the immensity of Jesus's response. I mean, his response, part of the problem is we're too familiar with uh, this passage. But his response is radical. And then number three, the scribe's response to Jesus' response. Very simple. The original question, Jesus' response, and the scribe's response. So number one, <clears throat> the scribe. The scribe, just so, just so you know, was basically an expert in the interpretation of the law. And according to rabbinic tradition, there were about 613 commandments found in the Torah. And so on the surface, This looks like a very academic question. He's basically coming to Jesus and saying, of all the commandments, which is the most important? But almost all commentators on this text, they say that there's something unique, something very sincere about the scribe. And um, this scribe is asking a very genuine question, and this is what he's basically asking. He's saying, listen, life is short. You know, we're all going to die at some point, and life is full of do's and don'ts. And so in this short, brief life, I want to know like, what is really important. What should I pursue? Well, which commandment is the most important commandment? Or as Chuck Colson has asked, like, how now shall we live? That's the question. How now shall we live? Right? And this is a great question, but I want to just offer two comments on the question. The first is this. If you really listen to the question, this is not a question that our culture would ask uh, anymore, and this is why. The question implies that there is a right way to live. There is a way to live that is universally applicable to every person. And if you are a typical person in our culture, in our relativistic age, right, you don't like that because... Uh, to each his own, is the rule of our society. We don't want to believe that there is one absolute way that is equally applicable to everyone. If anything, if the question were asked today, what is the greatest commandment, it would be each person has the right to decide what he or she uh, deems uh, worthwhile to pursue. So that's one uh, comment on the question. The other comment I want to offer is this. Isn't it interesting that both the scribe and Jesus find their answer to this question via revelation. And that's very unique. Think about that book. I think it's called Eat, Love, and Pray. It's this famous memoir about a woman who goes to Italy, India, Indonesia to find the meaning of life, to see, you know, to answer this question. And the way our culture answers this question is not through revelation, but through reflection, through experience, right? And so this question I want to highlight is very foreign to us both in the question itself but in the way that it is answered now just two quick responses first the, to the question of relativism i think most of you are familiar with this book by c.s lewis mere christianity and in his openings chapter he has this great comment he says there is no true relativist He says, many people will say there's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. Many people will say, well, if you want to keep your promise, it doesn't matter, it's up to you. But the minute you break your promise to that person, that person says, hey, that's not fair. And so, you know, you just have to realize this, and I I say this with utmost respect, relativism implodes. It's not a sustainable philosophical system. I know it's popular today, it's pervasive, Uh, again, the belief that to each his own, but it's just not a sustainable philosophy. But the second, uh, you might say, objection as far as finding our answers through God, through revelation, that has come under serious fire. Many of you are probably familiar with the names uh, Hitchens, Harris, these uh, not, not just atheist writers who try to reject Christianity, but who have become very hostile to the Christian faith. And they have argued that anyone that believes in revelation, anyone that believes in God, is just irrational. And I I think that even in the church, we have almost become apologetic that we believe in God, that we believe in the validity of revelation. But I want to encourage you um, in that there are many elite Christian philosophers, someone like Alvin Plantinga, who has demonstrated the uh, fallacy in a lot of this atheist thinking. And they have proven that Christianity is a very valid way of thinking through life, very valid approach. And so they have shown that revelation is actually a very good way to think about God and to approach life. And so that's number one, the validity of the question, what should we do in this brief life? What is the greatest commandment? Now, number two, <clears throat> let's look at Jesus' response. And again, um, what a response. I mean, again, the problem is that we're too familiar with this text. I grew up in the church, and there was this song that really took these words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I would sing it for you, but um, it would not be edifying. <laughs> so, so if you know this song, um, you, you know what I'm talking about. But there are at least three aspects to Jesus' answer. The first is this. He, sa- he first begins by reciting the Shema, which was um, the confession that any Orthodox Jew said at the beginning and end of each day. And then he goes on to say, love the Lord. And notice the wording here, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, love him with your entire being. Love him from the depths of your heart. And one of the best ways to think about this um, particular commandment is through um, Archbishop William Temple's quote. He says, your religion is what you do in your solitude. And this is what he meant. He says, you see, where does your mind go effortlessly? What he was talking about was when you're on the metro, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're showering, right? What do you daydream about? And I remember this one woman shared with me this. Uh, She was a single mother. And I asked her, what's your deepest fantasy? What, what, What do you daydream about? She says, well... My son right now is in his last year of high school, and he's probably going to graduate top of his class, and so he's going to give a speech. And she says, in those moments when I'm just by myself, right, she says, this is where my mind goes. I see him giving a speech and thanking everybody, the principal, his teachers, maybe God. And at the very end, he says, and you know, above else, I want to thank my mom, (laughs) right? She, She is why I am here. That was a a very good, that was a very honest response because, you see, that is what she loves, with all her heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And if you want to really have a sense of what Jesus is saying when he says, love the Lord your God, right, as William Temple says, who are you or what are you in your solitude? Like, what do you dream about? You know, And and Jesus is saying, that's how you know what you truly love, right? It's very... um, so it's, a tough, it's a tough thing. If you're very honest, what would it be? For some of you, it might be winning the lottery, right? Like, what is it? And Jesus is saying, that is the greatest commandment. So that's number one. But then he does something radical. He ties in a, a verse from Deuteronomy in a a text from Leviticus. And he basically says, it's not just loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength, because it's easy for us to suppose that we are actually doing this. But then he makes it very tangible, very concrete. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the standard there is very high. He basically assumes that every person in this room is a narcissist. And you know that is the case. So, you know, whenever you look at a picture, if you're honest, you notice the first person you look at, is not even your children, yourself. Shame on you. I do the same thing, right? You see, um, you know, what Jesus is saying is to the degree that you love yourself, this is how you should love other people. And in Luke, Jesus expands on exactly who the neighbor is and what this looks like in that famous parable that most of you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The way that parable works is you have this Jewish man on the road to Jericho and a bunch of thieves fall on him, and so he's left half dead. And then we're told of a Samaritan who comes, and he does something just outrageous. He actually draws near to this man who who looks half dead. And in doing so, he endangers himself. For all we know, the thieves are still around. For all we know, that this man himself is faking it to draw someone close. And then he saddles this man. He takes him to an inn. He cares for all his needs, right? This is amazing because love here is characterized by proximity, coming near to our neighbor, by compromising our safety, and then being um, marked by incredible generosity. And friends, think about this with me for a moment. You know, I've been in the uh, Northern Virginia area um, for much longer than I thought I would. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is that when people buy a home, usually the number one criterion is what? Does it have a good school district, right? And now, I'm not saying any parent should be like, well, let me see where's the worst school district. (laughs) I'm I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is that when you and I, we choose places to live, usually safety is of utmost importance. We want to go where we know our children will be safe, where we will be safe, where they will get the best education. But Jesus in this parable says loving your neighbor means sometimes compromising safety. And then loving your neighbor, it it requires generosity, not just in terms of our money, but also in terms of, you know this area, in terms of our time. Um, Rosario Butterfield is a name that you might know. She wrote a book last year entitled The Gospel Comes with a Key," and I read it. It was, it was a very, um, very instructional, inspirational book. But the one phrase in that book that just kept clawing at me was her idea of margin time. And this is what she talks about in her book. She basically says that you and I, we tend to fill up our schedules. Google Calendar, everything to the T is set. And she says one of the things that she does in order to be a loving neighbor is that each day she creates margin time, about one to two hours, where just in case a neighbor comes and stops her, she is able to pause, to listen, and to engage. For me, that was the most challenging part of the book because my schedule is so busy. My wife always makes fun of me because whenever I take out the garbage, I do it at night. Because we have a neighbor who is very chatty. And so, every time I take out the garbage, she's like, "Hello, Paul." And um, I mean, the first—this to- is terrible. This is a confession. First time I met her, I pretended I didn't speak English. I was like, "Oh, hello." <laughs> so, but in any case, so my wife was saying, "You can't do that. You know, like you—you you gotta make time. Make time." And you now, the reason why I thought about this is after reading Rosaria Butterfield's book. And reading the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, imagine how much time it took for him to help this man. That, that's one of the things I, I really never appreciated before. Imagine how much more slowly he had to travel. He had to go to—it just inconvenienced them. And Jesus is saying, yet, is this not what you would do for yourself? Would you not want someone to come near, to perhaps endanger them themselves? Would you not want someone to be incredibly generous, not just with their money, but also with their time? So Jesus ties, not. Uh, he says, not only should you love the Lord your God with all your hearts and one body strength, but you have to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the second aspect. But the third aspect that William Lane talks about in his commentary is that the motivation for loving our people, can, for loving your neighbor, cannot be fear or pride. He, he says very uh, interestingly, he says, you see, the reason why Jesus mentions first love the Lord What Jesus is trying to say is that when you love your neighbor, it has to represent an overflow of your love for the Lord. It's like in the Old Testament when David, after he becomes king, he thinks about his deceased friend Jonathan, and wonders if Jonathan has any uh, sons remaining, and he finds Mephibosheth, right? And when he finds them, right, what would have been the typical behavior of kings would have been to kill him, because that's how you preserved your your own uh, family. But instead, he loves them. He restores his greatness, but he loves Mephibosheth not because of Mephibosheth, but because of his love for Jonathan. What Jesus is saying here is: even when you love your neighbor, it cannot be out of fear that what will happen if I fail to love my neighbor. It cannot be out of pride because you feel better about yourself. But when you love your neighbor, it has to represent an overflow of your love for the Lord. And so the scribe came in and some and some and he says, "What's the greatest commandment?" And Jesus says, "Well, if you really want to know," right? This is what it is. God must be your deepest uh, fantasy. He must be the thing that you love with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. And related to that is you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And with that, when you love your neighbor, it must represent an overflow of your love for the Lord. When you hear this response, doesn't the end of this passage make sense? No one dared ask Jesus any more questions. If anything, people were probably saying, Why'd you ask that question? <laughs> now we can't plead ignorance. Because you and I are meant to feel the immensity of what this greatest commandment is. Again, it's hard because we're still familiar with it, but we are meant to feel the immensity of it. That's what it means. And so that leads us to our last point: the scribe's response. Now, the scribe's response. Is interesting because he not only echoes what Jesus says, he not only says, Well, you are right in saying this, love the Lord and love your neighbor, but then he adds a cryptic remark and he says, To do so is more important than burnt offerings. Now, this is, we may not appreciate this, but this is a radical statement because in Leviticus 1, burnt offerings uh, had a very important function. This is how you made atonement. Depending on how wealthy you were, you would bring either a bull, a goat, a turtle dove, a pigeon, whatever it might be. You would basically touch the animal and doing so, like transfer your sins and then sacrifice this to the Lord. So burnt offerings were very, very important. So the scribe is saying something. uh, If you listen to what he's saying, he's basically saying this. Oh, you see, I could make all the burnt offerings you know I wanted, But if I fail to love the Lord, and if I fail to love my neighbor, then this is all meaningless. That was an outrageous statement to make. He's basically saying to do this is more important than even to offer burnt offerings. But this is the dilemma that arises. If you are listening to what Jesus says, again, the scribe is saying, okay, to love the Lord and to love your neighbor is more important even than burnt offerings. So much so that all the burnt offerings, they wouldn't mean anything. However, who can really love the Lord with all their hearts all my body and strength? Who can love his neighbor as himself? And so basically what the scribe is saying is this, I'm lost, I'm hopeless. Like, what can I do? Like, I can't do this. And even all my burnt offerings can't um, atone for this. You see, it's a radical response to Jesus' radical response. Again, the scribe says, I'm totally lost. And herein is the key. Listen to Jesus' response. He says, You are not far from the kingdom. You see, there are two parts to Jesus' response. He says this. This is number one. He says, listen, you came thinking that your problem was ignorance. You came thinking, Oh, if I just knew the answer, then I could do it, and then all would be well. But you see, now you have come and you realize and you admit you're completely lost. You're completely lost. You cannot be your own Savior. And in that confession, you are now near the kingdom of God. Friends, do you see that irony? Maybe some of you have come this morning. This happens quite often at church. And uh, maybe some of you are at a difficult point in life and you feel like you need a little bit of religion and you feel like, okay, I'll go to church and I'll figure out what I have to do. I'll get my life together and all will be well, right? If that's the way you're thinking, you're still your own savior. But like the scribe, if you're able to say, I'm completely lost. Even when I know what I should do, I'm unable to do so. And by admitting your lostness, Jesus says, you are near the kingdom of God. See, that, that's the irony of the gospel. Those who admit their weakness, those who admit their need, those who admit their lostness are the ones who get in. But the second part of Jesus' response is very striking because he says, you you are not far from the kingdom. But Jesus doesn't say, you are in the kingdom. And you notice the way this text ends, he doesn't then tell the scribe what the next step the scribe has to take. The the exchange just ends there. Why doesn't Jesus, because if I were the scribe and Jesus says, oh, you're getting closer, getting closer. If I were the scribe, I'd be like, so what do I have to do next? And I think the reason why Jesus doesn't tell him what he has to do next is because he could not do anything next the next step would have to be taken by God himself. You see, the New Testament talks about how God would have to offer one final offering, the offering that all of the Old Testament um, offerings point to, and that offering would be the person of Jesus Christ. If you think about these uh, two related commandments, right, only Jesus is the one who ever truly loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's about to suffer the wrath of God. He knows he's about to suffer crucifixion. And he says, God, you know, I don't want to do this, but you know what? More precious than life itself is you. More precious than my convenience is your delight. More precious than anything is obedience to you. See, this great commandment points us to Jesus and what he would ultimately do, right? Because he loved the Lord. And by dying on the cross, he shows us what it means to truly love your neighbor. See, again, Jesus doesn't give him the answer in terms of the next step because it was Jesus who would have to take the next step. And I want to close by just giving you this encouragement. Maybe you have asked this question. Maybe the scribe, um, we know that the scribe asked the question. And friends, it's not that Jesus just gives us an answer. He embodies the answer through his life and death. And this is what he basically tells you. me. He says, you can try with all of your might to love the Lord, but you won't be able to do it. The only way you will begin to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength is to see that that is what Jesus has done for you first. See, friends, you cannot love your neighbor the way you love yourself until you see the true neighbor in Jesus. I want to invite you, friends, As you think about this question, as you think about the answer, look to Jesus, the one who enables to do what we cannot be and what we cannot do left to ourselves. Let's go to God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, first of all, for giving us freedom. Thank you for giving us freedom to ask questions. Thank you that you don't silence us, And thank you again that we can think through these questions together as a community, that we are meant to reflect deeply on Revelation together. But most of all, we thank you that you don't just give us the answer, but you embody the answer. You alone love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. You alone love your neighbor even to the point of death. God, I pray that this answer would not just enhance our intellect, our understanding of the faith. Most of all, this answer would deepen our appreciation and our love for you. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we know that in him and in him alone are we now able to love the Lord and to love our neighbor unto your glory. It's in his name we pray.